So I have to say, this, uh, this book of 1 Samuel just gets wilder and wilder, doesn't it? it uh, just when you think you've gotten to the craziest part of it, it just, it just keeps building. I love it. Um, <clears throat> a lot of years ago, Sarah and I were at the De Young Museum in San Francisco, and there used to be a statue there of Saul. I don't know if anybody ever saw it, but it was a big, you remember it? And it, you, the tension in the statue was what, what captured you, the... Um, he just, everything in him was just tense. And I remember, I don't think I noticed this. I think Sarah probably had to point it out to me because I don't notice these kind of things. But his one toe, his big toe was like lifted a little bit, like just, like he was just about to explode. And I couldn't find, I couldn't find that particular um, image. But I found a statue by, I think by the same, by the same artist from what I can tell. It's called The Madness of King Saul. And I just love this, that the same thing you can see in here, the tension in his face, in the muscles of his hand. Um, I wasn't sure how well it would display, so I even did kind of a zoom in of, of just the tension in his face. Um, Saul, in this, in this, where we are here in Scripture, he's a man in torment. He's a man just, just he's a wreck. And I'd like to remind us a little bit of how he got here. How did he get to be such a wreck? What's going on with him? Um, this passage today is actually, interestingly enough, kind of almost from the perspective of Saul. I mean, really, most of what we're walking through here is Saul's experience rather than like David's experience. And so I think it's helpful to walk through it from, from that perspective, from, from, from how, how Saul is experiencing it. So to begin with, um, way back in, in chapter 10, um, we, we read that, that Samuel, when they were trying to initially select the kings, Samuel brought the tribes of Israel near, and, and he's going through, and he's drawing them by lot, and he's narrowing them down and narrowing them down. And when they sought the, Saul, Saul was taken by lot, and when they went to find him, he could not be found. So they said, well, is there still a man to come? And the Lord said, behold, he has hidden himself in the baggage. Do you remember that? Saul did not want to be king. He was not out there saying, hey, hey, pick me. I want to be the guy. He, he didn't want to be the king. Um. Later on in chapter 13, um, we're not quite, this is, I'm just going to summarize that. He offers a sacrifice for himself. There's an event where this sacrifice happens and he's waiting for Samuel and Samuel doesn't come and Saul offers it and then Samuel comes and, and rebukes him. And, and so this tension begins to build between them. And then here in chapter 15, um, God says to Samuel, he, the word of the Lord came to Samuel, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And what happened here is God sent him out to beat the Amalekites, and he said, I want you to destroy everything, every bit, last bit of what you take, including the king and all of his family. I want you to, to, it all needs to go. And, and Saul kind of does a halfway job of it. And this is the result. God, God says to Samuel, I, I regret... Um, that, that I've made him king. And, it, and it's interesting, Samuel was angry. This affected Samuel. Samuel cared. He cared about Saul. I think there was a relationship there. I think there was a care in Samuel for Saul. And, God, and, and, and Samuel's upset about it. And then later in the same chapter, um, Samuel says to, to Saul, he says, when he's trying to get him to do the right thing, he says, though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. So we get a little more insight into how well Samuel knew Saul and, and, and how Saul struggled with, with a sense of identity, of, of a sense of even feeling like he should be the king. He didn't want to be the king. He didn't feel like he had it in him. And finally, at the end of the chapter, there's this separation of Samuel and Saul. Um, 
think I've got it here. Yeah, so they, the, 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 the tension builds between them. Things don't get resolved. And finally, Samuel goes to Ramah, and Saul went up to his house in Gibeah. And Samuel did not see again, Saul again until the day of his death. But Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. So that's this unresolved relationship is there between Saul and Samuel, right? They, they had been close. Uh, Samuel had cared about him, and now they're separated, and, and, and we're told they, they never saw each other again. Um, well, they will see each other again one more time if you know the book, but, but not, not before Samuel dies. Um, like I said, the book just gets weirder and weirder, and I love it. Um, <laughs> so, so then David comes into the picture, right? And... Um, First, he's, he comes in as a musician in, in Saul's service. He comes in, Saul's having the, these, these troubles come on him, and, and Saul, G, uh, David comes in and plays the lyre for him. And then when David and Goliath, when, when Goliath comes out and they need somebody to fight him, of course we know that story, David, David shows up and, and, and kills Goliath. And then finally he becomes a leader of the army. And God gives him much success. David is really successful as a commander of the army. And it causes Saul to be jealous of David. Um, in the last chapter, the tail end of the last chapter, David even became his son-in-law, marrying one of Saul's daughters, Michal. And Saul is, Saul is jealous of David, and, and he's afraid of him. We're told he's afraid that people love David more than him. I think he's afraid that David's going to steal the kingship from him. And, and this man who never felt like he should be king in the first place is just, David causes him so much, so much stress. So as we approach today's passage, that's our context. Saul's overwrought, he's afraid of David, and he's decided he needs to take things into his own hands. He decided, I, I can't let this go on. I, I've got to do something about this. So picking up in the last verse of chapter 18, we read this. We read, Then the commanders of the Philistines came out to battle, and as often as they came out, David had more success than all the servants of Saul, so that his name was highly esteemed. And Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and to all his servants that they should kill David. So he says, this has got to end. I've got to do something about this. We, we've, got to, we've got to kill him. And he, goes, and he goes to his commanders, and he goes to his son. He tells people, like, look, this is the plan. We're going to kill him. He's got to be taken out. And, and I think he's thinking somewhat even about his son. Like, if you're going to become the king, I've got to stay the king, right? And so, Jonathan, we, we've got to get rid of him. But, but his son, Jonathan, as we know, he loves David. Um, he, he greatly loves David, and he, he takes his dad, and he takes him off to the side, and he has a conversation, a very, a very reasonable conversation with him. Dad, you don't want to do this. This is not the right thing to do. David has been good to you. David has, David has served you well. Um, it would be the wrong thing to do that, and, and, and Jonathan is successful. Saul agrees. He says, you're right. You're right. It was, it, I, I agree. In fact, he takes an oath. He says, I swear... I will not kill David. He, nobody's going to kill him. And the impression you have, I mean, I think just at face value, it seems like he means it, right? It doesn't seem like it's kind of like a half-hearted oath. I think, it, I, I think he means it. I think Saul fully intends to keep this promise. But then some time goes on, and there's another battle where David does well again. We read in, in chapter, in verse 8, and there was war again, and David went out and fought with the Philistines and struck them with a great blow so that they fled before him. And then in verse 9, we read what I, what I think is kind of the crux of the whole passage. It says, Then a harmful spirit from the Lord came upon Saul as he sat in his house with his spear in his hand. And David was playing the lyre, 
And Saul sought to pin David to the wall with the spear. But he eluded Saul so that he struck the spear into the wall. And David fled and escaped that night. So Saul breaks his promise. Not only is he, is he breaking the promise of nobody shall kill David, he, he himself tries to do it. He himself tries to murder him. And as I said, I think, I think this is a critical, this is a real critical part of this passage. I think understanding this passage, this is a key to it. But I want to I take us through the rest of the chapter to get the big picture, and then we'll, we'll, we'll come back to this in a little bit. But this is the last time that they are together peacefully. This is the last time that, that, that Saul and David are really together peacefully. This is the beginning of, of, this, of the split of their relationship. So David goes back to his home where he, his wife, Saul's daughter, is there, and, and she says, look, you're going to die tonight if you stay here. So she sets up this plan. She sneaks him out. We read in verses 11 through 17, Michal took an image and laid it on the bed. I think it, just a statue maybe, or a, I don't know. I don't, I don't think that maybe it was a CPR dummy. I don't, but <laughs> she took an image and laid it on the bed. I don't think they probably not. And put a pillow of goat's hair at its head and covered it with the clothes. So she put the covers over it. And Saul sent, sends these messengers and she says, he's sick. He's like, well, I don't care. Bring him to me in the bed and I'll kill him there. And when the messengers came in, they go to lift up the bed, and they're like, that doesn't weigh a David amount. And, and there's, a, there's this, this image in there with the pillow of goat's hair. And so Saul comes, and he's, he's upset. He says to his daughter, why have you deceived me? Why, why did you let my enemy go? So that he's escaped. And she said, well, you know, he told me, I'm going to kill you, basically. She says, I, he told me, you, you have to let me go, or I'm going to kill you. So she lies to her dad. She she. She lies to him about why she did it um, to, to stay out of trouble. So again, from Saul's perspective, Saul's a smart guy. Not only is there the frustration that he lost David, he, he was trying to get David and David is gone, but he must have felt, he must have known, right? He must have had a sense that his daughter's, maybe, but I, I get the sense that he knew that she, he's being betrayed by her, that she loves David more than, than she loves him. So first his son jo- Jonathan chooses David over him. Now his daughter chooses David over him. The people are choosing David over him. And I just think the pain for Saul, the, the, the painfulness of, of, does anybody prefer me? Does, does anybody care about me? Not even my children? Wouldn't you think at least they would have my back? And it's about to get worse. Because in verses 18 through 19, we read that David fled and escaped, and he came to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. And he and Samuel went and lived at Naoth. And it was told Saul, behold, David is at Naoth and Ramah. So this guy Samuel, who used to be, he was your advocate. He's the guy who pulled you out of the baggage and made you king. He was the guy who was your guide, who was your your, your, your advisor, and you guys didn't always see eye to eye, but he, I mean, Samuel's the guy who made Saul king. David flees to him, and Samuel says, yeah, come on in, and the two pick up and move together. So the people are against you, your children are against you, and even Samuel, even Samuel's against you. And it's, it's more than Saul can take, so he decides, again, he's going to take matters into his own hands, and he's going to do something about it. So as we read, continuing in verse 20, Samuel sent messengers to take David. And when they saw the company of prophets prophesying and Samuel standing his head over them, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul, and they also prophesied. 
So he sends his men to retrieve these guys. says, go get him and bring him back. Drag him back by force, it has to. These are his soldiers. And he hears, yeah, they got there, but I don't know what happened when they got there. They started, they started prophesying. They, they, they got, and um, there were prophets there, and the guys got there, and they started prophesying too. And it, I, it, you could do a whole sermon on, on this little section because I don't know what's going on here. I mean, these are, not, these are not prophets. These are soldiers he sent, right? And he sends three groups of them. Um, but the Old Testament word for prophesying is a very broad term. I mean, I looked up the word and you go through it. And like, if you know the story of, of Elijah and the prophets of Baal, that, that they spend all day there dancing and doing their craziness to try and get their God to answer, it says they're prophesying. The term is used for prophets, and the term is used for just about anybody who's doing something kind of outwardly, outwardly religious. Often we're told of false prophets prophesying. So it's, it's, I, I guess you can think of it as just they fall into doing some sort of outward form of religious expression. I don't know if they're dancing around with their hands up or, they're, or they're, what, what they're saying. I mean, some, some commentaries say, you know, it's spontaneous praise for God, um, but we don't really know exactly what they're doing. We just know that they, they, there's, a, there's a big prophet party going on there and they join in. <laughs> um, I, I think in modern terms, I guess you could think of it almost like a big worship service or like a, like a, a Christian concert maybe. Um, at those things, there, are, there is sometimes an intensity of emotion, right? There, there is, there is a, a real intense expression of emotion. And if you went through that crowd person by person, there are people there who are legitimately worshiping God. And then there are people who are just caught up in the moment, right? They're all kind of doing the same thing, um, if that makes sense. So whatever the case, the soldiers get there and they, they, join, they join the party. They get distracted. And so Saul sends another group and they join the party. Saul sends another group and they join in. And, and Saul finally says, this is ridiculous. So in verses 22 through 24, we read, Then he himself went to Ramah and came to the great well that is in Seco. And he asked, Where are Samuel and David? And one said, Behold, they're at Naoth and Ramah. And he went there to Naoth and Ramah. And the Spirit of God came upon him also. And as he went, he prophesied until he came to Naoth and Ramah. And he too stripped off his clothes, and he too prophesied before Samuel and lay naked all that day and all that night. Thus it is said, is Saul also among the prophets. Now I have to be honest my temptation was to do the whole sermon on that part because that's just wacky, right? I mean, um, it, it's just there's it's just kind of a wild story. Um, I'd like I, I don't know who the who the author of First Samuel is, but I can't wait to meet him. I mean, the detail he puts in, or she, I guess we don't know. We don't really know who wrote it, but but the events they were recording the events that happened, and it was a crazy time. Um, and in the same way, it's not entirely clear what happened with the soldiers. It's not entirely clear what happened with Saul here. Um, I mean, you read a lot of different interpretations of it. It does say that it's the Spirit of God that came on him. So was it spontaneous praise to God? It, 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 we don't know. Um, but the bottom line is, kind of the, the end of the story is, when the dust settles, um, Saul doesn't have David. He doesn't get him. David's, David's gone. And, and Saul is humiliated. Uh, can you see that in here, the, the, the kind of the humiliation of Saul in this? He went like, okay, fine, I'm the king, I'll do this myself. And he goes and he's, I'm going to bring him back by, by hook or crook. 
Is that the right phrase? But I'm going to bring him back, right? I'm going to go get him. I'm going to bring him back. And, 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 and what happens is, next thing he knows, he's, he's part of this prophecy and he's stripped down to some level of undress. I mean, whether he's just wearing his, his underclothes, we don't know, but he's, he's made a fool of, really. Saul is made a fool of here. Um, and this saying, this is Saul also among the prophets, it harkens back to it early on, Saul prophesied when he was a young man, when he was just coming into being king. And people said, is Saul also among the prophets? And it wasn't a, it wasn't a compliment. They were like, Saul's not a prophet, I've met him. Like, he's not, what's he doing there prophesying? And, and so, this is similar to that. It's, he, the, 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 the conclusion of all this is that Saul is just humiliated by all of this. So if we take a step back, here's what we see. Big picture, we see, we see a man who's, who's, who's struggling to, to know who he is, to find his identity as king, struggling with how people see him. He sees his children turning against him. He's being humiliated as he tries to, I'm going to be the king, I'm, gonna, I'm the king, I'm going to take charge, I'm going to do things, and it just, it, it falls apart. So do you see the image of this man that, that he's just grasping, trying to take control of an out-of-control life? But he's doing it at a distance from God. Samuel's separated from him um, and never... We don't see any indication that, 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 Sam, that Saul is seeking out God in all of this. He's trying to do it in his own strength. And I think it's okay to have some sympathy for Saul. I, I give you permission if you feel a little bit sorry for him. Um... The things he wants to be respected, to have his children love him, we can relate to that. They're very human things to want. And I think there's a tendency for us to want to be like Saul bad guy, David good guy. But there's only one good guy in the Bible, and it's not David. (laughs) We'll see that as we go on, right? If it's not clear the one good guy is God. I think you guys got that, but just, just being sure. So hold that thought. Hold this picture of Saul in your head because I want to circle back to that to verse 9 because it bothers me. Verse 9 really bothers me. Let me read it again. It says, Then a harmful spirit from the Lord came upon Saul as he sat in his house with his spear in his hand. And David was playing the lyre, and Saul sought to pin David to the wall with the spear, but he eluded Saul so so that he struck the spear into the wall. And David fled and escaped that night. Now, this harmful spirit from the Lord, it's not the first time we've seen it. In fact, I think it's the third time we've seen it. And there's various interpretations about what it is. Some people say, well, God took a demon and sent him to do his will. Which, I mean, there's explanations for for why people think that. Or some people say, well, the word isn't an evil spirit, it's a harmful spirit. And so God actually sent an angel to to go do harm to, to, to Saul. And then there's others who say the word, the word spirit can be taken almost in the sense of like, school spirit, or I feel downcast in my spirit, so that like God kind of inflicted a spirit of trouble, a spirit of, of anxiety on Saul with a harmful temperament. Um, and, and, and you can, honestly, you can pick any of those. Um, I think any of them work, and I know Mike has talked about them some, that, those interpretations some. Um, but the point is that Saul is suffering, and that God is causing the suffering. I think that part is clear. Saul is suffering, and, and God's the cause of it. And that's not what bothers me about it entirely. Here's what bothers me. So up to this point in this chapter, as we're reading through, things were getting better. Saul wanted to kill David. Jonathan talked him out of it. Saul made a promise. So 
And things were going well. There's kind of a peace between them, right? Things are okay. What messed it up? God. God with this harmful spirit. Do you see what I'm saying? Like things were going along pretty well and then God sends his harmful spirit and, and everything falls apart. And you go, well, why? Well, God, what are you doing? Because even if you see Saul as the bad guy and David as the good guy, you have to see, I mean, this, this effect, this didn't just have a negative effect on Saul's life. This had a pretty negative effect on David's life. This is the beginning of a very stressful time in David's life. So why does God cause it to happen? Um, I'm going to be honest, I don't know. But I have a guess. So I want to share my guess with you. Um, I want to take you back to where this first happened in chapter 16. It says, Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. And Saul's servant said to him, Behold now, a harmful spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful in playing the lyre. And when the harmful spirit from God is upon you, he will play it, and you will be well. So a couple things to note in this. First, um, we the readers know that the harmful spirit is from God, right? Because the narrator told us that, the harmful spirit from the Lord. But the servants know it too, right? And Saul's servant said to him, Behold, now a harmful spirit from God. So the servants are also aware you know, there's times in the Bible where you read things and the narrator tells you things that maybe the people in the story don't know. But clearly here, they know the same information we do. They know that this, that this harmful spirit is from the Lord. Unless we doubt this harmful spirit's from the Lord, they repeat it. Next time the harmful spirit comes, it says it's a harmful spirit from the Lord. I mean, it's clear this is a harmful spirit from the Lord. So, but the point is, this, 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 the servants know where it comes from, and which likely means David knows what the cause of this is too. I don't know how they know that, but somehow they know that, that God has caused this. So second, David's not just a court musician who plays music at random times, right? He's not just, he's not just the, the, background, the background music, the soundtrack. There's an order to what happens. The Spirit comes on Saul. He calls David in. David plays, and Saul gets relief. You see the order in there, right? The, the, the Spirit hits him. He says, bring in the lyre player. David plays, and it soothes Saul, and he gets relief. So if you look back at our verse, the, the one here in chapter 19, when I first read it, I think it read like this. Saul sitting with his spear, a harmful spirit caused him to throw his spear at David. Is that how you read it? Like that, that God came and he caused Saul to throw the spear at David. But if we look at it again, Saul's sitting in his house with his spear in his hand, which apparently is what he does, because I, even in, in 16, apparently he likes to sit with his spear in his hand. You know, some guys like the TV remote, some guys like to have a spear. Um, I, I, I kind of want to get one, honestly, for when I'm sitting on my chair. Um, I don't know if my wife would let me. That's probably a good idea, especially when the kids are home, right? Um, so he's sitting there with his spear in his hand, and then... The harmful spirit comes on him. And then they call David and he plays the lyre because that's what they do when Saul gets like that. King's getting feeling bad again. Call the lyre player. And then Saul throws the spear at him. There's a separation. Do you see that? It's, the distinction is the harmful spirit came on him as it had in the past. David came and played just like he had in the past. And whereas in the past, like here, the result is... David, Saul is soothed. 
Instead, Saul throws the spear. So it seems like Saul chose to reject the comfort. In the past, it had been a comforting thing to him. And this time he says, I don't want to be comforted by you, and throws the spear at him. So the distinction is God caused Saul to be in the condition, the stressed out, uncomfortable condition. And God provided David as a way to soothe him. But Saul chose to reject this this method of, of, of being made better. But we still have to wonder, God, why can't you just leave well enough alone? I mean, they were getting along, kind of. And it seems like this episode brings it crashing down. And my guess, and it's a guess, is that maybe God wasn't content to leave well enough alone. Because although there's peace between them, it's a Cold War kind of peace, right? It's kind of like, kind of like we had peace with the Soviet Union during the 80s. Like, yeah, we're not, we're not killing each other, but we're not at peace. It's surface deep. And Saul is still stubbornly trying to do things in his own power, by his own force of will. And so I wonder if forcing them back into this intimate setting with Saul struggling and David helping them, David returning to his role not, just, not as a military leader, not as a threat to king, but as this, as this musician, a simple musician servant, um, maybe even, and this is massive speculation, but I don't know, maybe he was singing some lines from the latest psalm he was writing, right? Total speculation. But, but I wonder if, if that wasn't God trying to give Saul another chance to, to, to yield his heart to God. Now we might say, well, you know, God rejected Saul as king. Oops. Oh, I was going to read that before, but I didn't. We might, say, we might say, right, that like God rejected Saul as king. So what do you mean he's trying to give him another chance? And, and that's true. God has rejected Saul as king. But I don't think that means that God has rejected Saul as a man. Do you see that you see the difference, right? He's rejected him as a king, but I don't think God has given him up as a as a as a person. In 2 Peter 3:9, we read, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So I would say to you as we continue through this book, keep your eyes open. Because I think God continues to pursue Saul, the person. And to give him opportunities to turn to him. He, it doesn't happen, in case you're wondering. Saul doesn't turn to him. But I think there's many places where we see places where Saul has an opportunity to actually yield to God. Where God continues to give him opportunities. Continues to pursue him. And can particularly continues to pursue him through the person of David. Their relationship is, 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 a, is a method that God seems to use to, to try to speak to Saul's heart. And, and many of you in your own lives have probably experienced this, right? I mean, how many of us um, were pursued by God over the course of many, many years before finally yielding? That's, how, that's what God does. It's how he works. So in this moment, with David playing the liar, I think Saul had an opportunity to yield to God. God gave him that option, and instead he threw his spirit at David and said, Nope, I, I, I'm, I'm in control. I'm going to keep leading here. And it is worth noticing, we noted this before, as difficult as this is for Saul, David's also struggling. But it's interesting, too, that we don't get much insight into, into how David feels in this chapter. He's just kind of going along for the ride, it feels like. Jonathan's doing stuff, Michelle's doing stuff, Saul's doing stuff, and Saul's, David's kind of bouncing from place to place. 
So don't you wish you could, you could get a little bit of sense of what, what David is feeling in this? You could say yes. You're right. Well, as it turns out, look at this. Psalm 59. A mictum of David when Saul sent men to watch his house in order to kill him. So David wrote a song about this event in his life. Um, and in the first few verses, we get a sense of how he feels. He says, deliver me from my enemies, O my God. Protect me from those who rise up against me. Deliver me from those who work evil and save me from bloodthirsty men. For behold, they lie in wait for my life. Fierce men stir up strife against me for no transgression or sin of mine, O Lord. He continues, or, the, or I, I kind of highlighted that. He's saying, God, they're mad at me and I didn't do anything. And then he goes on, he says, kill them not, lest my people forget. Make them totter by your power and bring them down, O Lord, our shield. So you see what he's saying? He's saying, these guys who are pursuing me, God, don't just kill them. Keep them alive so that people can see how wrong they are. See how wrong they are about me. He says, he wants people to remember. He wants it to be known that, David, he, that he didn't do anything wrong. So you see... In some ways, David and Saul are similar, right? Saul is concerned with his reputation and his standing and what people think of him. And you know who else is? David is also concerned about that because he's a human. <laughs> and that's how we are, right? We care what people think about us. It's a normal thing. But whereas Saul turns to violence and plotting and, and doing things in his own strength, where does David turn? Well, the psalm tells us. He... he puts all this out there. He puts his concerns out. And then in verse 16 and 17, he says, but I will sing of your strength. I will sing aloud of your steadfast love in the morning for you have been to be a fortress and a refuge in the day of my distress. O oh, my strength, I will sing praises to you for you, O oh God, are my fortress, the God who shows me steadfast love. David finds his comfort in God. That's the difference between them. It's not that David is, it doesn't worry about the same things that Saul does. In fact, as we go through this book, it's interesting, the parallels. You want to talk about like worrying about your kids having an affection for you? Read the story of Absalom. David, David's son, I don't not to give the plot away before we get there, you'll forget. Um, <laughs> but, but, but his son, I mean, his son takes the throne from him at one point. So David ends up going through a lot of these same things that Saul does. And we have these psalms where we see his response is to turn to God. His response is to yield to God and say, God, help me. Over and over again, through going through some of the exact same worries and concerns that Saul, what David does is turns to God. So in our own lives, it's hard, right? There's days where we feel like, we feel like Saul in that statue, um, just overwhelmed with cares and worries. And we have the exact same choice. We can, we can try to solve it in our own strength, or we can lean into God. We can have, helpfully, we can read the Psalms, and sometimes when you don't have the words to express how much you want to lean into God, you find one of the Psalms that's similar to your circumstance, and boy, is he good at expressing it. And, and oftentimes, that can be a way to, to help us get there. And, and to be honest, this event that happened to David... Where, where God kind of stirs up trouble. Don't we, have, don't we have that same experience sometimes? There are times when things come up in our life and it's clear. I mean, basically, there, there's two ways you can look at it. Either the struggles in your life are just happening 
And God is like, whoa, didn't see that coming, right? And is like, let me see what I can do to help you out there. Or, or God knows it was coming. And, and in fact, maybe even, even ordained it in his sovereign over your life. And while it's not nice to think of God sending trouble our way, it's not nicer. It's, it's worse. This idea that God is just taken by surprise by the thing in our life, that's way worse. The reality is God is sovereign. He does know. He's not surprised by the things that happen in our lives. And that can be distressing because how can he allow us to suffer? Why does he let these things come into our life? Well, the Bible has a ton to say about that, right? We could preach 50 more sermons about that. But in the end, our choices come down to the two choices of, that Saul, of, between Saul and David. You either, you either fight it, like Saul, and, 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 and get mad and, and, and try and solve it in your own strength, or you lean into God and trust that, I don't know what's going on, but, but you do, God. You do. Now, Randy shared, Randy Guyton shared this picture with me this week. Um, this, is, this is from the, the, the Webb telescope. Um, and it's, it's one of the images, I mean, one of many amazing images that has come back from it. And I look at this image and I think, that is beautiful. But it's also completely beyond my, I, 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 I can't even grasp it. I don't know, I can't grasp how big that is. I don't know what, I mean, are those clouds? Like, I don't think so. I think they're nebula. I mean, I don't even understand what any of this is. It, it makes no sense to me other than I look at it and I think it's beautiful. And there are people, there are scientists who could look at that and tell you what some of those things are. But those, the scientists who understand this the most probably could, t- could understand it maybe 5%, right? I mean, we're doing our best, but, but we're, we're, we're just getting there. And, but my point is this. Just because I don't understand it doesn't mean it can't be understood, right? That is, that, somebody understands that. God does. God understands that. Scientists will continue to, maybe in 20 years, they'll get up to 12% of understanding it. The, the explanation is there. It's just hard. It's just complicated. And, and, and that kind of humility is the same thing we need with the events that happen in our life. It's not that there's not a reason for them. Um, if I'm wrong about why God did this with Saul and David, which I probably am, maybe, I don't know, there is a reason. There is a reason God did it. It's a logical, reasonable reason, even if we don't get it. Well, God tells us he isn't working against us. That's the key, Right? He says, you, think, you may think I'm working against you. David might have thought I'm working against you, but that isn't true. God tells us he works all things together for good for those who love him. Not for like a greater good, but for, for our good, for your personal good. He tells us in John 16, he says, I have said these, this is Jesus talking to his disciples, as I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. God wants us to have peace. And it doesn't come from grasping and clinging and plotting and trying to take control of things. There's no peace there. If you've tried it, you know. It comes from yielding to God, to trusting Him. It's a hard barrier to get to, but on the other side of that barrier, there's peace and there's joy. There's the kind of peace and joy that we see in David in the Psalms and that is a million miles from Saul in this passage. Let's go ahead and pray. 
God, we confess to you that we don't understand most of what happens in our lives. But we, we know that you are good. We know that you are sovereign, that you have control. And we know that you love us. So God, help us to lean into you and to trust you and to take comfort in you and to know that, that you provide for us, Lord. We thank you for your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.